we spent uh, the last two weeks in Romans 6. And uh, whenever, I don't know how you feel about the word review, but when I was in school and the teacher said, okay, now we're going to have review this week. I thought, oh no, that means a test. And it was always kind of a negative word to me, review. I don't want this to be negative today. I want this to be upbeat. And so on what we just experienced in praise and worship of our Lord Jesus Christ, let's be upbeat, okay? I don't know a a more positive word than review, but let's review! (laughs) Okay, so... (laughs) we're trying to look through Paul's eyes as we look at Romans. The the context of who he was talking to. And we learned last week or the week before that the church that he sent this letter to was really made up of a mixture of Romans and there were basically two different kinds of people in that congregation. There were those who were citizens of by birth, of which Paul was. He was not a slave. He was not a provincial person from the provinces, but he was a free man. And he was, as he says in the very beginning, introduction uh, to Romans, is that he was a servant. And he saw himself. And he defines us, the whole church, as either being soldiers or slaves. We talked about soldiers the week before last. And we were led by James and uh, Eric and I think, oh, and then myself in, in giving a, a presentation, a salute. And that is what it means for us as soldiers to present our members, our body parts, to the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ. That's our loyalty. And unlike what's happening in Turkey, and I don't know the news that well, and I don't know who's the good and bad, Luann. You, maybe you can fill me in afterwards. I hope I don't make a mistake. But there was a rebel army those who were dissatisfied with the leadership. And I I don't, like I say, I don't know whether they were good or bad. But armies don't usually do that. They follow the captain. That's their calling in life, to obey. Paul also talks about the slaves. And so he was talking to slaves who could be either soldiers, or slaves. He was talking to those Romans who were a mixed bag of people and were probably very similar to the Roman church here, except that I think we've got more Japanese than we've got of any other nationality, but maybe not. You know, we're made up, we took a count uh, last year when we came, and there was about 14 or 15 different nationalities represented in our congregation. That's international. And that's who Paul was preaching and teaching to. 
and made up of either freemen, Romans, or of slaves. But Paul says we're all either soldiers presenting ourselves in God's army or we're slaves to Jesus Christ and to whom we give allegiance, a salute, because he is our chief. He is the one whom we give our lives to. And if he says go, we go. If he says come, we come. If he says put it on a different tray, we put it on a different tray. Put a smile on your face, we put a smile on our face. Remember Nehemiah? I talked about Nehemiah last, last year. Nehemiah was a slave and a servant to the king. But he had a burden in his heart. But as a servant and a slave, he was not allowed to look sad. And I'm sure that he went in with a crooked smile that day when he had a burden on his heart for his people. And the king discerned, he says, you are sad. And it's a deep sadness. Nehemiah was sad for the people of God and the condition. And he dared to be disobedient. And the king had mercy on him. But that's not my point. My point is that we as slaves and as soldiers in the army of God, our first call is obedience. When we look at chapter 6, and we went through our outlines and my taking chapter 6 apart and putting it back together, I hope I put it back together, but I really encouraged you to do that as you look at Scripture. It really has been a blessing to me, and I thank you, every one of you that have allowed me to delve into Romans as deeply as I personally have. It is a blessing. It's the best work I've ever had. It's the best job I've ever had. To be able to delve in every week into this book and really understand it and bring it to light in my own life. We're talking about 10 benefits of the life in Christ Jesus. Now, there's probably more than 10 in this section. And so I challenge you to go back and you can take this outline with you. Let's start by reading Romans 6. And this is in the New American Standard. Sorry I keep switching, but, you know, that is good Bible study practice, by the way, is to look at different versions and see how they... People look at these words, these Greek words, because it's not in any of our native tongues. And even to be able to have your own language Bible, Chinese, Japanese, Spanish, whatever it is, you can learn something by looking at different translations as to what the, the original understanding is. Go in and take the Bible apart. What I mean by that is not take a pair of scissors and, and pull out the pages, but it's to mark it up, highlight. That's what I learned.
from K. Arthur. Anybody heard of K. Arthur? Precepts is to learn how to take the Word of God apart and see how it fits. It's like taking a puzzle apart. Do that. Make that even your devotion time of looking into the Word of God part by part, piece by piece. Why did he use that word? Why was that particular word used for that particular situation in understanding your concept? Very important, I believe. Okay, let's, let's read. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We have been baptized into his death. Baptism, for all you Presbyterians and Reformed people, really means to be immersed or dipped. Fully buried in Christ. That's our disposition. That's our position. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says in the opening sentences, he has these rhetorical questions. But those rhetorical questions are used as a teaching method just to bring us to focus on what he wants to talk about and we all know the answers too. He says here, so that we might walk in newness of life. And that's our first point. This is what God has called us to. This is what he is intending to do for us God is not our real enemy. Yes, it says that we were enemies of Christ. But he was not enemies of us. And he sent his son for us, the enemy. His only son to die for us, his enemies. But he wasn't standing against us. He was for us. And his purpose is newness of life because he knew that we could not stay in our sin in order to be able to have life. Everything we do is in decay or falling down. Everything I've ever built with my hands has grown old and rickety, even my body. And that means that we're living in a, in a world that is falling down and wearing out. And we can't escape. There's no way out of it. We're all decaying. We're all dying. Satan said, no, you won't die. You'll be like God. He was a liar from the beginning. They began to die when they disobeyed the master, the king, their God. Walking it in newness of life. That's the purpose. Let's read on. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Our next three points then are, number two, in the likeness of his resurrection. This is the power that is in us, just as we sang in that song. This is the power of God in us, of resurrection. It says in likeness of his resurrection, not in our resurrection. You know, there were several people in the Bible that were resurrected from the dead. They really weren't resurrected. They were raised up from the dead, but they were not resurrected. There is a difference, a fine difference, between being raised from the dead and being resurrected. Do you know that? Those who were raised from the dead, like Lazarus, I mean, can you believe if you were to die and you were in Christ and you went to heaven and had to come back? <laughs> that isn't a blessing. That is not a blessing. Lazarus had to die again. He had to go through the whole pain of dying again. Why? He was not in the likeness of Jesus Christ's resurrection. That's the difference. And that kind of defines and helps us understand what does it mean then that we have new life? You must be born again. What does that mean? It means that we must be receiving of his life even before we die physically. Receiving of his life in exchange for ours and we become in our spirits eternal beings. We become able to, even though this body perishes, we will rise again like Jesus Christ. And when he was raised from the dead, when he was resurrected by the Father, and he went right through a door, right through the walls that were locked, right into the presence of his disciples, and there he was. Why? Because he had a different body than we, we have. He was the only one that has escaped from this womb. We've talked about this before. The world and the nations are covered in a shroud like a womb. And it says that Jesus Christ broke through. Blessed is the firstborn who breaks through the womb and is born. And Jesus Christ opened the way for us when we die, where are we? We're present with the Lord. We break through. That's what the new birth is. That's what it talks about. No longer to be slaves to sin. That's the provision. He's bought us. And so we don't have to serve sin and death and wickedness and this world. That's the provision He's provided for us a way in which we can no longer be slaves to sin. And then fourthly, 
that we're freed from sin. And Paul's going to talk a little bit more about this when we get into chapter 7, and that's the reason why I'm doing another little review, just to get us ready so that when we get into 7 and 8, we'll really be able to digest it. We'll really be able to bring it to ourselves of what has been done in our Christian life and that we understand that first of all we need to die in order to be able to have new life in him. And he has provided for us eternal life. We'll get to that point, but freed from sin. Paul struggles with this in chapter 7. And I know every one of you have struggled with it in your lives. If you say you haven't, you make God a liar, and you are a liar. Yes, we have sinned, and we are sinners, and we need a Savior. And we need much more than somebody just to say, oh, well, I'll help you. No, we need somebody that will hang on a cross and receive all that punishment, all that accusation, everything that you ever thought of evil or sin, everything, anything that you have ever laid eyes on, anything that you've ever experienced, Jesus took it in his body and hung on a tree for us. We're freed from sin and it's hold on us. Verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that takes us to 5 and 6. We live with him. This is our privilege. This is our... He's our father. He's our dad. He's our papa. And we come to him not as children of the world, children of death. We come to him because of Jesus Christ. We come before him as his kids. We have this privilege that he has given us as adoption. I don't know whether some of you know, but many of you do probably know it. I'm adopted. I was not raised by my own birth parents, at least not my whole life. And I thank God for the privilege that I have of living in that home. And you know what? I always felt badly. I, I was actually adopted into my uncle's family, and I felt badly for my cousin. He was the oldest son, but I was one year older than he was. But they, I was going to say, put the responsibility on me to be the oldest son. No. They give me a privilege to be the oldest son in that family, even though I was adopted. And that's what God has done for each one of us. 
He has given us a privilege and honor and a place to be his sons and his daughters. And I thank God for that in my life. It became to me something that I really didn't understand until I had my own children. Somebody's going to take the place of Kent, my son? I don't think so. Wait a minute. That's the place I took. You know, when I was probably about 35 or, or so, I had an opportunity to be with my cousin brother. And as adults, we talked about dad and mom and the home that we were raised in. And I told Neil, you know, I, I am sorry. Please forgive me for taking your place as the oldest son. I always felt badly. He says, Ron, Ron, no, no, no. Don't feel badly. Dad always wanted me to be a pastor, and you're the one that fulfilled his dream. <laughs> he became a policeman. It's like a pastor. Anyway, we have this, this privilege and this place that God has given us. And that is for us all. All as children of the Heavenly Father. Let's go on to verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members, your body parts, as instruments or weapons is actually the word of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you're under grace. It's not on the basis of what you've done or performed. It's on the basis of God's grace through you that you're living as Christians. Anything that you do that God can use in the life of others or as a witness, salt and light, doesn't come from us. It comes from Him. We've got to get that, folks. Just reading your Bible while well, I've done this for 20 years now. Read my Bible faithfully. Be careful. Be careful if that's where you're putting your confidence. Yes, it's good to read your Bible. Yes, it's good to sit at the feet of Jesus. But it's also very defining. And the Spirit of God can point it out. Of works, even reading your Bible, or praying so many times a week or a month, can turn into dead works. And it doesn't bring righteousness. So we need to understand that our members are to be Christ himself. 
point uh, four, for sin shall not be master over you. You're under grace. And I call that protection. And how is that protection? Well, number one, it's protection from yourself. We need protection from ourselves because our pride comes up and tries to grow into our life where we can boast in the Lord. We have to say, no, save me from that, Lord. That I become a servant obeying you. He knows what's in my heart. He's like the king that saw Nehemiah's heart that was very, very sad. Our king is even sharper. He is the one who protects us from ourselves, first of all. And we are our number one enemy. We are the ones who allow us to fall out of grace by counting well, I've had perfect attendance at Sunday school. Well, that's good, but it's not going to get you very far. It might get you a little sheet on the, uh, that you can put on the wall. And that's what we do as Christians. And you know what? The world can smell that a mile away. They can know he is not truly a Christian because he's wearing a badge. He's wearing his marks on him, his rank. No. We're slaves. We're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're to be protected from. There's also another factor of, of the protection, and that is that we need to come to that place where we honor the position and the privilege and the place that we have, but we also understand what really protects us. It's his word. Psalm 119, 9 to 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? by keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And when this word lifts off the paper and applies to our lives by the Holy Spirit, it has become rhema. It has become life for us. It becomes the living word then. And that's the secret, one of the secrets of walking in the ways of the Lord by applying this to our lives. Verse 15. What then shall we say? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one 
whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And then in 17, he goes on to say, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. Let me just stop right there. You became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. We talked about this and we'll just review it a little bit more. This sentence actually can be misread and there are some translations that I think have got it wrong. It's saying that, thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed to. The word of God, we think, and there are verses that actually back this up, we think that the word of God has been entrusted to us. And so it's something that we have. And I talked about this last week, I think. But no, we are entrusted to the word. We lay our lives down to the word of God. We have to do that first in order to be able to really allow the word of God to get into our lives and change us and bring us into new life and reformation. That's an essential teaching and understanding. We are entrusted to the word. I think that's what Paul's saying here. That form of teaching, and we talked about the form, typos, is the Greek, I believe. Any Greek students here that could correct me, but I think it's typos, means the form or the pattern. And I asked, quizzed you last week, the pattern is calling back to the tabernacle and God saying to Moses, make it the tabernacle after the pattern that you saw. That's the pattern. This word of God applied to our hearts, pressed down onto our, whoops, our heart, and you cut around it. You know, you women do that. I've, I've watched Katie do it. Uh, lay out a piece of fabric and you got this. Uh, do they do that anymore? I haven't seen you do that for years, Katie. But they have this very thin paper that they lay out and they cut it all the way around this on the, the cloth. And you've got to make sure that you don't cut in too close because then you have nothing to sew together. That's what... Maybe we don't understand that today. We need to go back to making our own clothes. Because you need a pattern. This is the pattern. Is the pattern what you're going to wear? Are you going to wear that flimsy stuff? I don't think so. That's what this is like to our lives. It's the pattern. And so we're entrusted to the pattern, and the pattern is entrusted to us. It works both ways. Try to figure that out. And then you can listen to the tape if you want to. I stopped there at 17, didn't I? And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 
I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, and that's what I was just doing. So if Paul can do it, I, I can do it also, okay? For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. And points 8 and uh, 9, entrusted to the pattern the word of God, and then sanctification. As slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. Sanctification is a very difficult word. I don't know whether... Do you guys ever use that word in your English classes? How many have taught English? How many of you have taught that word? I don't think so. But you know what? It is essential for the Christian life. You know the word sanctuary? We're going to be in the sanctuary. I guess we could call this a sanctuary because we've set it apart for special meetings like this. That's what it really means. Is we just set apart this, this room. But you know, this is a really a multi-purpose room. It's not a sanctuary because we have chairs that can move around. And if we had benches, then we could call it a sanctuary, because we can't move them. And in the olden days, in my day, churches had hard benches, not cushy ones like this. And those couldn't be moved around. Some of them were even bolted to the floor so that you couldn't move them around. And there were even families who bought a bench and put their name on it. That's our bench. This is the patent bench. You're, you're supposed to be over here. Yeah. No. Sanctuary means to be set apart. You're portable. You can move it and put it in a certain place. Set apart for a special use. In fact, it's so special that the word actually... Let's see, where did I find this here? Okay, here it is. Sanctification is an interesting word that we never use on a day-to-day basis today. Basically, it means to set aside something to be used for the purpose for which it was created. You get that? Set aside something to be used for the purpose for which it was created. Man, it sounds like the person that made up that definition read Genesis, has read the Bible. We as human beings have been created for a special purpose. And when we come to that purpose, when we come to Jesus Christ, we become holy. We become set apart. We become His. We're no longer part of the world. We are his people. We are sanctified. We have been set apart for his purpose. Paul started out his letter saying, to the saints at Rome. Well, what about the saints at MCC? Yes, if we are following Jesus Christ, if we have named him our Savior, and our Lord, 
and given allegiance to him, we are sanctified and we are saints, set apart. And that is purity. In other words, synonym for sanctification is holy, pure, set apart, dedicated in the context of what Paul is talking about. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things was as rubbish. It was death to us. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. That's the definition of a saint. That's the definition of purity. That's the definition of what it means to be a Christian. Think of yourself that way. Don't think of yourself as, well, I belong to such and such a church, or I belong to such and such even doctrine. I'm set apart for Jesus Christ. And at the very end it says, and the outcome, the benefit, is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, we've been picking up some memory verses. This is one of them. And I think it's a very important one for us to remember as we go in to chapter 7 and Eight. Memorize it, okay? So that when we go into these next chapters, we'll be able to really get a hold on what God's heart and desire is for us and Paul's heart was for us. That's our promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a light. Thank you that it's also a hammer. And if there's any part of our mind or heart that the Holy Spirit can use here today, work that in us, that we come to that place where we are pliable and we are broken down and know that you are the answer. And it's not in outward form, but it's an inward pattern and form in our hearts. We thank you for that work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.